Okay, so first of all, thank you for the Appleson for uh, for having us. Appreciate the uh, the uh, the opportunity um, tonight. I mean, parenting as everybody here knows uh, is something which uh, is not uh, can't be condensed into forty five minutes. I mean, you can talk about principles, but none of that's going to be really relevant. Um, I thought that it was particularly um, interesting that. Uh, as all parents know, that you have some of those good days and some of those bad days. So today was one of those bad days. <laughs> so it's it, it's it's happening. At you know, as I'm thinking about these things, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a topic which is uh, which is very dear to me in terms of uh, child development and uh, stuff of that of that sort. But um, uh, it's something which um, has a lot of information to it. And we're going to try and just do perhaps a basic overview of some of the things uh, tonight. And then uh, if there's interest, so then we, uh, you know, we, will, uh, we will continue. But the name that we gave, uh, the name that I gave to it was uh, Parenting from the Inside Out. And uh, we'll see, hopefully by the end of tonight, you'll understand what exactly the inside is and what the out is and what, uh, what, what the full meaning of, of that is. But uh, the subheading of that is uh, Raising uh, Resilient Children. And resilient children, I'm going to work with the definition of children who are not afraid to make mistakes, who are not afraid to be wrong, and who have the capacity to bounce back in the face of adversity. So that's a tall order. You know, I'm sure we all work with adults who, who could, you know, use a little bit of, uh, you know, honing the skill of, uh, of resilience. But uh, hopefully if we go ahead and we... Uh, address it when they're younger in the developmental stage, in the an earlier developmental stage, will be able to tap in and uh, set them up for uh, for much much greater success. So, and feel free to you know ask me to clarify anything along uh, along the way. Um, makes me nervous when I have to talk too long, even though I do that professionally. Um, so, Rav Shlomo Volbe was a one of the great personalities in the latter part of the, uh, the 20th century. And he wrote, which is, is a short sefer, but it's something which is very powerful about Chinuch. He wrote many different things, but one of them is about Chinuch. And that specifically is, it's called, the, the name of it in Hebrew was Zriya Ubinyan Bechinuch. I think they've translated it into English. So it's planting and building in Chinuch. And he says that there's two different types of growth or two different types of construction, which one is going to see. One is Zriya, one is the planting an organic type of growth, where you put a seed in the ground and it's going to just grow. And then you have a structure where you have blueprints and you have very specific parameters of how the structure is going to be, and there's really not much leeway. You're off by an inch or something like that, and the whole thing just doesn't, uh, just doesn't, uh, doesn't fit anymore. And he says that Chinuch is really about both of those things. It's developing that perfect balance between Zriya, the organic growth on the one hand, and Binyan and structure on the, uh, on the other hand. And what he, uh, what he explains is, is that, and this is something which I'm just going to throw out names you know, as, they, as they pop into my head. See, I made my list of names so that when you want to look them up later. Um, so so uh, Gordon Neufeld uh, and Gabor Mate wrote a wonderful book about uh, attachment. Uh, Gordon Neufeld, I think, is the, the primary author of it. I think Gabor Mate sort of jumped on the, uh, the bandwagon, but uh, Gordon Neufeld, so he has a wonderful uh, book about, uh, about um, uh, attachment, attachment specifically between children and parents and how uh, in the last three-quarter of a century or so, so much of what used to be an essential part of child raising, the attachment that children had, has uh, in modern society has fallen apart, has disappeared by, uh, by and large for a number of different, uh, different factors. But he also has a lecture about where he says the roots of attachment and uses the same model of planting a seed. He says the, the, the main thing in terms of zriya, in terms of planting, is that you put the seed in the ground and as long as the conditions are right, the right soil, the right water, the right uh, sunlight and all of that, so then the seed's going to grow on its own. You don't need to do anything more than create the conditions in which the growth will then happen organically. And he said child development is by and large the same thing, that our job is to give them the correct conditions, and then with the correct conditions, then they will grow and they'll mature on their own, and you don't actually have to get involved. 
So the need to be on top of everything and to control everything, so that is something which he says that in, its real, in, in real child development is something which is unnecessary. So zriya is that organic growth which is going to go on its own because as long as you, create, as long as you put in place the correct conditions, everything will, will go. Binyan is, is you need to have a plan. You need to have a blueprint. You need to know what you're striving for. You need to know also what's considered to be outside of the parameters. Once you have your two by four is 10 feet rather than eight feet, so then nothing's going to, uh, no, nothing's going to work on top of that. So Binyan is having that vision of what you want the final product to look like. And Binyan is making sure that there's going to be, that's where the discipline and the parameters and the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the rules and whatnot. That's where that's going to come in because the, the shortcoming of organic growth, and this is true of almost any plant, that if you don't tend to it and you don't prune a little bit here and a little bit there, so then it grows wild. And if it grows too wild, then you end up with nothing. We have a pear tree in our, our backyard when we first move in. So it was extremely productive. There were lots of pears. They were all over the lawn. You could eat them. It was, it was gavalic. I didn't take care of the tree at all. So as a result of not taking care of the tree, it produces almost no pears at this point. Because it, its growth actually impedes the ability to produce too many branches and too many leaves, and there's not going to be pears anymore. So had I pruned the tree along the way, so then I had given it some binion, some structure to it, then it would be much more, it would be much more productive in terms of fruit production, but without that, so then it's just going to grow wild and it, it, doesn't, uh, do, do, it doesn't do anything. So we have these two, these two types of things. In one extreme, and if we apply this to parenting, in one extreme is let the children just do whatever they want and don't impose on them rules and structures or anything of that, of that sort. We all know parents who fall into that category. And then you have the Binion parents, all structure, all structure, all structure, and don't allow for any organic growth because every, the, the entire environment has to be controlled. It's sort of like a bonsai tree. That eh, you're always working on it to make sure that it's going to go in a particular way. I know bonsai trees actually have organic growth, but it's going to be something where you're trying to completely control the environment. Both of those are to the detriment of the child. And as we said, the obvious, obviously what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out the exact balance uh, which, uh, which, uh, which is going to be perfect for the child. Understanding anybody who has more than one child knows that there's not one size fits all and it's a, uh, it's a new recipe which you have to go ahead and you have to find for each one of the children what's going to be the correct balance of Zriya and Binyan which is going to be best for them. But as Gordon Neufeld says, as Dr. Neufeld says, the most important thing in all of their development is the attachment to the parent. The attachment to the parent is the most important thing that, that, that could be, and that's really what I, want to, uh, what I want to focus on. So children, as they enter into this world, so humans are the most dependent upon the adults in their lives in order to be able to make it through childbirth, infancy, you know, all of those, all, all of those different stages, children do not become uh, depe- uh, independent till, you know, contrary to what they think about themselves, but they don't actually become independent to sometime much later on in life. And that's one of the longest spans of time that you find under of any creature which, which exists, that there's such a, a long period of, of dependency. And I'm going to talk a little bit about brain from an uh, evolutionary point of view, but not because, yes, evolution, not evolution, nothing to do with that, just because it just explains how the brain is structured, so it just gives an easy way to go ahead and, and, and put it there. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the brain in a way where children understand perfectly well, and people understand perfectly well, that nobody could exist by themselves. No could, nobody could be an island to themselves and live a productive life and be able to, uh, to function. We're all dependent upon one another. We're all part of a society. And we know that the reason why that this sense of shame, which people experience, where they're embarrassed by something that they did, they feel a sense of shame. The reason why people will work so hard bending themselves into a pretzel and all sorts of things to not have to experience shame is because of that underlying understanding that if I did something for which I need to be ashamed, I may get thrown out of the group. And if I get thrown out of the group, I'm, no longer, I'm, I'm all by myself. And if all, I'm all by myself, I cannot survive. It's impossible to survive by myself. And therefore, shame is one of... And one, one of the authors, I forgot, uh, forgot her name, but in the, uh, the, uh, 
the Velveteen Principles, she says she talks about how shame is one of the most motivating um, uh, feelings which we have, and we will do almost anything to avoid to avoid that sense of shame, to avoid experiencing that uh, that shame, and we we lie to ourselves and we're dishonest with ourselves in terms of our opinions about things and our thoughts about things, and also everybody here uh, I'm sure has had that experience where you have an opinion about something but you're just so afraid to share it with others because what are they going to think about you? And therefore, as a result of that, that fear, what are people going to say about you, is that sense of shame. So that's something which is a very strong, so that, that sense of I need to be attached in order to be able to survive is something which children from infancy are aware of that, of, of, of that, uh, of that factor, aware of that uh, sur- survival. And infants, as they, as, as, the, as they begin to grow and develop, so initially they have just, they have a state of calm and they have a state of distress. That's all that they, they know. The thinking part of the brain certainly isn't online as of yet. By and large, you know, the limbic brain is in a very uh, primitive type of way. It also doesn't, they can't feel anything other than distress and comfort. Distress and comfort, and they go back and forth be, between that. And this is one of the most important uh, developmental times for a child to know that they are cared for, they are attended to, and there's somebody who's trying to understand them. Attunement is one of these terms which, which they use. In that attunement, even though you can't see it because you don't get verbal feedback, you don't get feedback, but being attuned to a child, even with their limited vision and all of that, is something which lets them know, gives them a much strong, it broadens their, their foundation it broadens their understanding of who they are and how the world is going to function. It is the most important thing that the, a parent can provide for that child. Just sitting there and looking at them in the eyes and cooing with them and making noise. They don't understand language. You can speak language, but they don't understand language. But just hearing a soothing voice in, seeing, in, in, in holding them when they're crying and being able to bring them from a state of distress into a state of comfort by holding them and humming. I can remember to this day, you know, as a child, being upset, how Bubby would hold us, and she had a certain tune that she would just, she would just hum along. And then, you know, as, as much as we would be crying and we'd be wailing and whatever it is, didn't, didn't do any. she just held us and she just went back and forth because that's what children need. Children need that sense of comfort which comes not from words, it comes from identifying and connecting with them on that emotional level rather than anything which is going to be, a, which is going to be intellectual. And that attachment is something which is the most important thing uh, for the child's development. Now, when they're newborns, and they're very young, so we understand that intuitively. You can't really speak to them. You know, you could, well, you know, you could try, but you can't really do so. Jennifer Kolari, which I still haven't read the, the book I stuffed about, um, but, uh, but, but she talks very much about the need to go ahead and when a child, is, when a baby is coming out of the bath and they're yelling, or you put them in the bath and they're yelling and they're screaming, say, oh, you must be so cold, it's so hard in speaking to them. Again, they don't understand the language, but they, they, they pick up the sense that you're trying, you're attuned to them, you're trying to connect with them, and that's something which is incredibly uh, powerful. When they get older and they begin to talk, that's when things begin to fall apart. <laughs> because as soon as they begin to talk, they talk about it in terms of the terrible twos and whatnot, but when they begin to talk, the problem isn't on their end of the equation. The problem is most often on our end of the equation, because we assume if they could talk, that means that they could think. If they could think, they're thinking like an adult. And then we begin to look at their behavior, and we begin to analyze it, and in a sense judge their behavior as if they are an adult, and this is... This is, this is not adult behavior. What do you do? You can't behave. You can't have a fit in the middle of Jewel. How dare you go ahead and have a breakdown in the middle of Sarah's tent? We're shopping. We have things we need to do. They're, they're, we, have a, we have an agenda which we're trying to get today. You can't do this at this point and trying to reason with them as if they have any sort of reasoning cap, you know, capability uh, whatsoever. And this is where... Uh, even more so, as important as it is as infants to be attuned and to connect and to attach, at this age, it's all the more important. In this age, it's more challenging because you have to learn to read their Torah Shabbat Peh. Their Torah Shabbat Peh in the sense there's what they say and what they're doing, but then there is looking deeper into it and trying to understand where's this behavior stemming from, and if you could look, trace that back to where it stemmed from, not the, the outer manifestation, not the klapichutz, not what you see superficially what they're doing, but to understand what's troubling them, then you can actually address the, the, the primary problem, and then the, the, they will much more appreciate the attunement that you have with them at that point. 
So we're all familiar with what happens when kids get hangry. You know, they just completely fall apart and they just seem completely out of control and you give them a couple of snacks or something, you give them a meal and suddenly they're angels, they're back again. Because whatever they were doing, they don't have the ability to say, you know what? I think I'm hungry. I need some food. I need some energy. I'm falling apart because, uh, you know, I'm starving. We've all come home from work. We're starving. We're, we're not ourselves till you go ahead, until you, uh, you know, you, uh, you, you get yourself some energy. But children, kids don't have the ability to articulate, to verbalize that. And therefore, they'll tell you what they want through their behavior. And our job is to learn to read the behavior to ignore what's actually taking place on the surface and to, to try and uh, dig deep into what exactly is going on, so there you'll be able to best help them and, get, and, and figure out what it is that they need at that time. And I'm going to use a story I heard this past week, if that's okay. Um, so I, I, I heard about a frightening story about uh, 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 parents meeting with a, uh, with a rabbi, uh, and they were having a discussion about a seven-year-old child. Mm-hmm. Seven-year-old child, uh, who, uh, from what I understand in the meeting, so the Rebbe just kept repeating, chutzpah, 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 chutzpah. And that's all the Rebbe was seeing, was the fact that this child was, uh, was being chutzpahdik. And when you, and I wasn't part of that meeting, but I, I've been in similar types of meeting as a parent. And, 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 and when, when, when you're there, so when they're talking, they're they approaching it as if a seven-year-old child is making a conscious choice to be chutzpahdik. As if, we're going to say, Something happens in the classroom. The Rebbe says something to, to the child. And at that moment, frees the frame over there. And the child thinks in his mind, should I be chutzpahdik at this point? Or should I be compliant? Should I just be quiet and just do what the Rebbe says? Or should I be chutzpahdik? I'm going to weigh out the pros and the cons and figure out which is going to be the best approach. And after carefully weighing out all the options, all the pros and cons, with the to-do list and the, the checklist and all those things, you know what? I think chutzpah is going to be my best approach at this point. That's going to be the option which is going to serve me best at this moment. And then, boom, out of his mouth comes, comes chutzpah. Obviously, that's not, what's ha- that's, that's not what's happening. Children don't have the, that frontal cortex to be able to think and plan and have that checklist of things, the pros and the cons, and weigh out those things. Their, their executive functioning is nowhere near on the level that they should be able to do so. So what's actually taking place? So one of the phrases which, uh, which, uh, which, which I've learned to love is that, using this as an example, but we'll generalize from it, is that chutzpah is not a discipline problem, it's a relationship problem. Chutzpah, defiance, is not a discipline problem, it's a relationship problem. In other words, going back to the brain, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the brain in a way where its primary function is to assure the safety and the well-being of the organism. That's, what the, that's the job of the brain. The job of the brain is to make sure that you are going to be safe. And there's all sorts of alarms, there's all sorts of triggers which are there and which we learn over time in order to make sure that we're going to be, we're going to be safe and, we're going to be, and we're, going to be, uh, we're going to be protected. And what happens is, and this is what we know from, from trauma, from people who experience a traumatic event. We may talk about a different trauma later on. But one of the things which, uh, which, uh, which trauma tells us is that at the moment of the traumatic event, I don't know how many of your kids read Cam Jansen? No? Oh, no. Was it Click? Click? Yeah. Yeah. Just my kids read Cam Jansen? Okay. <laughs> oh, as a child. Okay, so Cam Jansen is a, is a series of stories where she has this amazing memory, and when she wants to remember what's going on, so she says, click, she takes a mental picture in her brain, and then later on in the story, she uses that to solve the mystery, whatever it is. But she takes a mental picture of everything which, which is there on screen. So the brain does the same thing when there's a, tra- when there's a trauma. The brain takes a, a snapshot of everything which is there, and all of that now goes on the red list, the warning list. So smells and, and, and visions and, and things which you see and experiences and touch and all of those different things. The brain has a permanent record of all of those things, everything which was sensory at that moment, so that when those ever arise again in the future, the brain says, uh-oh, Alarm, the alarms go off, and suddenly that's what we call PTSD, but all the alarms go off and say, oh, I think there's danger over here because last time I saw this, last time I smelled this, last time I felt this, 
I was not safe and I was, in, I was in grave danger. And that's the brain's way of being able to protect the organism is that everything becomes danger until you learn to you know, pinpoint exactly uh, what it is. You know, I uh, heard a story about uh, one, uh, one uh, boy who was uh, you know, molested as a, as a child and the molester happened to be wearing his tefillin at the time. So the smell of leather triggered him. And he literally could not go anywhere near tefillin for years and years and years because as soon as you take it out of the bag and the smell of leather hit his nose, he, he just had this, this, this terrible reaction to it. And it's something which that didn't really play a part of it. But since the brain click, and it just takes a snapshot of everything which is there, so he couldn't get anywhere near it because of that. So that's what the brain is designed to do. It's designed to go ahead and keep, keep track of things and keep us safe. One of the things which which I, I, I enjoy very much when I, I, I indulge, is that there are, there's a, a, a YouTube channel called The Behavior Panel. It's four people from different things, and they analyze body language. And they look at videos. This week, they're looking at OJ videos. <laughs> you, know, you know, did he do it? Did he not do it? What did he say? And they do it, and they analyze the behavior, and they watch how it, it's, it's an amazing thing. If you're those, those who are interested in that and those who watch it, is that it's almost impossible for a person to hide the emotions that they are feeling as they talk. Because since the brain can only do one conscious thing at a time, so the, the example that they talk about, when a person needs to lie about something to say that they didn't do it, so their brain is so focused on um, uh, uh, um, writing the lie, delivering the lie, making sure the lie is accepted, they don't pay attention to their body what their body is communicating, and the emotions which they're experiencing are, are inevitably going to leak out. And it's something which you could actually see my kids in the car, they could actually tell that we were watching this, uh, this one person and a, and a different thing, but this one person that whenever he was recalling events, his eyes went up right, and whenever he was conjecturing, his eyes went up, up left. And even my Shloimi, who's six, was able to see which way his eyes were going as he was talking, as questions were being presented to him. Was he recalling something or he's conjecturing? And it was a consistent pattern all the way through where his eyes were going. And he has no idea that he's doing that. But he happened to be somebody who was, it was very pronounced that that's the way his eyes would go. And you could see now, I, I actually told my students, I said, from now on in class, pay attention to your teacher's eyes. When you're bored, out of your mind, because the you know, teacher's boring. So pay attention to where their eyes go, ask lots of questions, and see if you can figure out the pattern as to when they're telling you something that they know, and when they're making something up that they actually don't know. And it'll, it'll it just be a fascinating way of being able to, uh, to have fun in class when nothing else exciting is, is going on. Yeah, I'm corrupting the youth. But so this is something which is which is which is which is clear. So one of them said that you could break down uh, behavior into two categories, and that is it's either the assertion of power or the reaction to the assertion of power. Either a person is asserting power or somebody else is asserting power, and you're reacting to that. So chutzpah, when you break it down, is a response to the adult's assertion of power. That's what's happening. The adult is saying, I'm taking control of this situation. And then the child is going to do something, is going to react to that. Why they're going the chutzpah route as opposed to some other route has to do with other experience, you know, earlier experiences in their lives. But the chutzpah which the child is demonstrating is their defense against the adult's assertion of power. That's what it is. So the child is feeling threatened. And when the child is feeling threatened, the child goes into a defensive mode, and their particular defensive mode happens to be this uh, the, uh, chutzpah. But that's what it means. Defiance is not a discipline problem. They're not misbehaving. It's a relationship problem, meaning that they sense that there's a disconnect between the adult in the room and the child. And as a result of that, the child doesn't know what to do other than to be defensive. Sometimes, some children, I'm sure this, uh, everybody's familiar with it also, some children, when they, when they feel attacked and they go on defense, they put, they put on a nervous smile. When they put on that, that nervous smile, it drives the adult crazy. The Rebbe or the parent or the, uh, you know, the mower, whoever it is, they say, what, do you think this is funny? You think that what we're doing is a joke over here? This is making you laugh? That you smile? The child has no idea that they're smiling. It wasn't, a, again, it's not a conscious decision. Should I smile? Should I not smile? What should I do at this moment? That's their defense against somebody else's assertion of power. 
But if you just look at it superficially, they're laughing at you. And then that drives the, it drives the adult crazy, and then they go ahead and they punish them even more, and the child still doesn't know what they did. <laughs> they still don't know what's going on yet before that, and now they're getting punished even worse than that. But all of that has to do with the fact that the child is feeling threatened, and this is how they're defending themselves. This is how they're defending their territory. But uh, what some people say, uh, Gabra Mate talks about good anger. Good anger, healthy anger, is a defense of boundaries. Somebody's crossing your boundaries. You need to defend yourself. And all creatures will defend themselves when something goes into, the, into, their, uh, into, into their space. You watch, here's examples. You watch ducks on a pond. One duck gets too close to the other. It starts to flap its wing and kicks its legs and splashes all over till the other one gets out of its space. And then once they properly space, then they're able to go ahead and move on. So children will, uh, when we, we look at children's behavior, so we have to keep in mind is, as they're growing older, is they're always communicating something to us, and it's our job to be in tuned, and it's our job to make sure that we could figure out what exactly it is that is getting under their skin so that we can address it so that they feel heard, they feel validated, and that they will be, then be able to process through it and be able to, uh, to, to move on. Uh, what happens is, and this is where we get a little bit to the inside-outside, is that um, the, um, if you think about it, and we've all had this, uh, this uh, experience as well, is that the easiest children to parent are somebody else's kids. Oh. Right? Have you ever had that? What? what? As you said that, I was like, yeah, which one of the easiest children to parent? Yeah, yeah. Somebody else's kids. Now, why is that so? Why is it so easy to see what other people's kids need and what other people are making mistakes with regards to their own kids? And we all know that to be true. We're all, we're all, we're all guilty of, of that. Here I am giving class. <laughs> so we're, we're all guilty of that, of, that, of that crime, as it were. But why is that so? So the reason why that's so is because when it comes to our own kids, we get triggered. So when the child has a breakdown in shul... That's a, that's a trigger for, uh, for fathers very often. The child can't sit in shul, and somebody else's kid is sitting so quietly and so well in shul. Why can't you sit in shul? Or they have a breakdown in the store, and you just want to get out of there because you have you know, three appointments that you need to get to, and you've got to get the food for Shabbos because Shabbos is coming. You've got to have the food in order to cook. And you have all of those things that you need to do. And it's a, that exact moment that they go ahead and, br- and break down. So when we get triggered, also for us, the prefrontal cortex goes offline. The thinking part of our brain goes offline, and now we go into what? An IFS. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In IFS, we go into firefighter mode. Firefighter mode is there's a fire, I need to put out the fire, I need to do whatever it takes as quickly as possible to get this over with, and then we bribe or we punish or we do whatever it is, whatever our style is of parenting is, is firefighting par- parenting, but we do whatever it is in order to quickly get control of the situation, because we feel that we're out of control. If they're out of control, so who's looking, who sees, that means that I'm not being a good parent. And whatever thoughts are running through your mind, consciously or unconsciously, once we get triggered, then we don't have the ability to think clearly about what's going to be uh, best for the child, certainly. And we end up uh, not attending to, their, uh, not, not, not attending to, uh, to them. And this is something which is, uh, when that happens what the brain is going to revert back to is your, the programming, which is the pre-existing programming. This Bruce Lipton, I don't think I mentioned his name before. Bruce Lipton is somebody who talks about that. He talks about the honeymoon effect. I think he has a book called The Honeymoon Effect. I think it may be a book that, uh, that he wrote. And he says, he's, he's one of those, these people who talks about how you could only hand, the brain could only handle one conscious thought at a time. And that's why, you know, you could drive and you could talk on the phone at the same time. Right? Everybody does that? I mean, not that I'm asking you to admit that you drive and talk on the phone. But, but as soon as it starts raining, so what do you tell the person on the phone? I need to go. I got to go. I got to pay attention to my... So why, why all of a sudden, because it's raining, do you, need to, uh, do you need to hang up? Because normally you could drive unconsciously. Right? We all drive to work. Or whatever our regular driving thing is, we do that, and suddenly 20 minutes go by, so how did I get here? I don't even remember making any of those turns, and here I am at, at work. Because we could drive unconsciously, and therefore we could attend consciously to the conversation because I could drive unconsciously. As soon as it's raining or it's snowy out, so then I need to pay attention to driving. If I need to pay attention to driving, I can't have a conversation at the same time. Whether when you were a child or as an adult, you take your kids on vacation and everybody's having a great time and singing songs, doing whatever they do. As soon as it starts to rain, what do you tell everybody to do? 
Shut up. Everybody quiet. <laughs> no more talking, no more singing, no more anything. Because all of that stuff, suddenly that now interferes with your conscious uh, a focus of what you need to do in terms of driving in order, to, uh, in order to be able to be safe. So he says in the honeymoon effect, he says that when dating, so what happens is, is everybody knows that they need to be on their best behavior. Both the guy and the girl know that they're trying to court the other one. While you're courting the other one, so you're going to be especially attentive to what's going on with them, what they're feeling, trying to pick up all of those things, and trying to respond very consciously to what's going on with them, so that you'll be able to successfully court them and bring them into marriage. And then as the meme or as the thing goes, two weeks into the, you know, into the thing, he's on the couch wearing the wife beater. You know, he's not shaving anymore and he's got beer cans all around. Hey, dear, get me another beer or something, you know, something like that. You know, all of his, all of his gentlemanness, you know, suddenly is out the window because he no longer needs to court. So he doesn't need to be conscious of that. And he goes back to his, his pre-programmed way of behaving and that's, where, where, where things fall apart. So whenever the prefrontal cortex goes offline, when we get triggered and the prefrontal cortex goes offline, so that's when we revert back to our, the programming which is automatically there. And we're no longer parenting consciously, we're parenting from default, the default setting, whatever, no, nobody likes the default setting, <laughs> whatever electronic thing you get, you don't want to use the default setting, so you always want to move off of that, but that's what happens when we, when we get triggered. And then when we get triggered as a result of that, so we're no longer, no longer parenting consciously. And then when we're doing so, we lose that attunement, we lose the attachment, and we lose the ability to be able to focus on what they need and what's actually bothering them, their Torah Shabbat pet, which they need at this moment, and we just lose it completely because of our, our triggers. And that's why, that's something that we have to be, that we have to be aware of because this is where... Uh, a, a lot of the difficulties end up arising from when we're triggered because that, then we lose our ability to go ahead and, and parent uh, consciously. And this is something, this is where the, the, the breakdown usually, usually occurs. And as I said, as they get older and they become more verbal, we think that they should have the ability to be able to reason and to be able to understand logic and to be able to have almost an adult conversation with them because they could respond with all of the words, but being that their executive functioning is so weak at that point, in being that their prefrontal cortex now, I don't know if it's at 25 it develops, 27, whatever the, the, the ages are before it's fully online, which is certainly much late, later than when they're, when they're little children, so we lose track of the fact that they cannot communicate in that way. And it's our job, Jennifer Kalari says, that it's our job to be their frontal cortex. When they can't think, they, when they can't use executive functioning skills to go ahead and think their way out of things, we have to go ahead and do so. But much more so than that is we have to allow them to be able to experience their feelings. And this is part of what happens in, the, in this developmental stage when they're first learning to talk, is that when they, begin to, when they begin to have that breakdown, they're crying about something. Somebody, a sibling, goes out and you know, breaks their toy or rips their picture or something like that. So our, our, our natural instinct is nobody wants to see their child cry. Right? So if my child is crying because of something, maybe you do. <laughs> so, oh, good. So when, 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 when many people don't want to see their child cry, and, and as a result of that, they'll go into firefighter mode to try and get them to stop crying. And that's when you give bribes, and that's where you give rewards, and that's where you do all sorts of things to get them to stop. But what that tells the child is, essentially, all those different things which we use to get the child to stop crying, what we're saying is, your crying is unjustified. Your emotions have no place, and your emotions should not be happening. And that's something which is very difficult. That means what the child is picking up when, when, when in that experience is, is my parents aren't getting me. They're not understanding me. They're not getting where I'm coming from. And therefore, they feel now disconnected. They become detached from the parent rather than the parent saying, it's so hard for you. This is, ugh, it's terrible that your sibling ripped up your picture. They broke your Legos. They did whatever it is. I can't believe whatever's. You don't have to, we, we have a tendency to want to solve the problem so that they'll stop, so that they'll stop crying or they'll stop fetching or whatever breakdown that they're having is to try and solve the problem. They don't need us to solve their problems. They don't really have a problem to solve. They need to learn to manage their emotions. And the best way for them to manage their emotions is for you to acknowledge those emotions. 
Just acknowledging it for them is already enough. It's going to be calming to them that they now know, as we talked about before, that the scariest thing for a child is to be disconnected, is to be detached from parents, from society, from everybody else. And if I'm having feelings, which everybody is telling me that I shouldn't have, something's wrong with me. And if something's wrong with me, so that means that nobody gets me. And now, inevitably, and this is what Gordon Neufeld goes goes ahead and talks about in the book, is that what's going to happen is it's not as if a child is going to go say, okay, my parents aren't connected with me, they're not attached to me, so then I'll just do without detachment. What's going to happen is attachment is one of those things that the brain cannot live without. And what they do is they attach to peers. And that's why, I don't know how old all of your kids are, but that's why they'll be on the phone nonstop with their, with their friends. And that's why all they want to do is get together with friends, friends, friends. They come home from school and they're calling their friends right away. And you say to them, you were just in school with them all day. What do you need to say about them? And you know, we, we don't actually get it, although we, we were at that age at some point. But what happens is, is that it's no, it, it never happened. I mean, people could be psychotic. But, uh, but it doesn't happen that people are not going to be attached. The only question is, who are they going to be attached to? Are they going to be attached to their parents, to the adults in their lives? Or are they going to be attached to their peers? And the danger of being attached to their peers is that their peers is the blind leading the blind. The peers also don't have a, 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 a developed and mature executive functioning in prefrontal cortex and know how to handle danger and know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And as a result of that, so then they're going to, when they're peer-oriented, so then that, that creates a bigger uh, gap in between parents and child. And then we, they, they no longer turn to us for connection. They no longer turn to us for support. They're no longer going to, uh, to, to identify with us. Right? One of the, one of the, the beautiful things as ch- a child are growing at the event, developmental age is when they decide they feel so attached to the parent, they want to be the parent. And they dress like mommy, and they're dressed like daddy, and they want to do all of these things. They'll take out a sitter, and whatever they see in the home, whatever they see the, the parent doing, they're going to try and mimic that. That's, that's a wonderful sign because that means at that stage they feel properly and hopefully developmentally appropriate attachment to the parent. And that's reflected in trying to mimic the, mimic the parent's behavior. When they stop... Yeah. Well, I, I want to go back to the crying. Yeah. I believe that many times kids cry as a response to whatever it is because they know that they're going to get acknowledged because of that crime. So that crying is, is their way of saying, pay attention to me. And if you don't acknowledge the crime, then they stop crying for those particular, for, for things that are unnecessarily um, triggering their crime. So I actually believe that you're better off many times not acknowledging it. Otherwise, you're going to get kids who are crying all the time. So, yeah. Right. So it, it, it could be. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. I, I just, you know, I think what you, um, kids' major motivating factor to me is attention. That is a major motivation. And however they can get your attention. And if they can get it by crying, they'll cry. If they can get it by coming to you and saying, Mommy, can I ask you a question? Or can I show you something? Or whatever then that's how they'll behave. And so part of our job is to, to move that crying into something more, um, concrete. not concrete, concrete, but more appropriate or more um, behaviorally acceptable. So, right. so uh, anyway, that's, that's my... Uh, right, so... Uh, the, like, the, yeah, there, there's definitely different approaches. Um, Gabor Mate says, for example, uh, it's probably in the uh, in the, the book he does with uh, with uh, Gordon Neufeld, but I've just heard him say this. He says that uh, that the, the 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 use of timeouts. He says that it, when it was originally uh, formulated, it had a, a very specific and very narrow context in which it was supposed to be used when the child was potentially going to be harmful to to somebody else or something like that. Somehow it became. A, a, a uh, uh, something which is used the go to for what uh, you know for uh, for discipline issues when children are, are, are acting out, and he said that in, mo- in his opinion in most instances, so what happens is is a child is in need of attention. 
right? They're crying because they're, they're in need of attention. So what do we do when they're most in need of attention? We deny them attention. So he, he's, not, he's not a big fan of that because at the time that they need it the most, then, then what, what, what he says is happening is, is that you're using your attention and, and, your, and your love as, a, as something which needs to be earned and it's something which can, if, if they misbehave, they could, they, could, they could miss out on it. They could lose it. They can um, not, they, they could not um, uh, experience it. And that's something which he said is, is potentially frightening for a child to realize, to think that, their ch- that the love that the parent has for them is something which is unconditional. That there's nothing which could ever get in the way of the love that a parent has for a child. And that, that is, at the, at, the, at the end of the day, that is the most important thing for a child to know. Is that my parent loves me no matter what, no matter how, no matter what I do, my child loves me. Doesn't mean that my parent agrees with everything I do. It doesn't mean that they approve of everything which I do. But their love is, but the love that they have for me is never something which is at risk, is never something that would be consciously withheld, is never something which, uh, which, uh, which would be used as a tool to go ahead and get, as a threat, to get them to go ahead and behave. So that's where he's coming from. So it, it, yes, you, you don't want them to become uh, too quetchy, you know, obviously, uh, obviously that. But what that may mean is that the child still doesn't feel that they're being that they are, that we're, we're getting where they're coming from, exactly. That the fetchiness is coming from a need of... Something. Right. It's, 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 it's coming from a, from, from a need. So o- o- almost all, be- all behaviors, and this is something which we carry into our, our adult lives, is that we, we do, we continue to do what works for us. And most often what that is, is these are things which we learn, these are strategies which we learn unconsciously as children, how, everybody learned how to manage their parents, right? Whatever, whether for the better or for worse, but every, everybody learned how to manage their parents. Whatever, again, that's how it's you know, intergenerational, but everybody learns how to manage their parents, and then that worked for them, and they continued to use those strategies throughout the rest of their lives. Now, they're not dealing with their parents anymore, but, they, they, but patterns continue to, uh, to, uh, to, to arise, and people will always revert, to, revert that's the, the Bruce Lipton going back to that, that default programming, which we all have, is to go ahead and do so. That's why, you know, uh, you know sometimes, depending on the dynamics, but uh, almost everybody is told at some point that you're, you're behaving just like your parent, right? Now, nobody, almost nobody consciously wants to be the, the parent, but it's something which, that's what we learned as a child, and that's our default programming, is to actually be like them. And in that way, so that's, a, that, that's where, we end up, uh, where we end up going, uh, going, going back to. But, but we have to realize that when the, ch- when the child is having an emotional reaction, so something triggered it, and because of whatever triggered it, so they are in need of something at that moment. And oftentimes, again, the, 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 this approach is that what they need at that time is they need attunement, they need attachment, they need recognition, they need to know that they are going to be there, that the, the parents and the parents' love is something which is going to be there unconditionally, and it can, it's never at risk, never ever at risk, no matter what, no, no matter what they do. Again, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to, uh, to, uh, to say. It's, a very, it, it's even harder to go ahead and, and do. But at the end of the day, that's going to be the foundation of the child. That's how the child is going to see themselves. That's how they're going to be resilient. If, the, if they think that every time I make a mistake, every time I have a breakdown, my parent gets angry at me, so then what's going to happen is, is uh, one of the, the outcomes is they learn to suppress their emotions. And you, one cannot suppress their emotions long term. It's like a pressure cooker. You know, it just it, it builds and it builds and it builds. And at some point, the person's just going to explode. There's just, just there has to be some sort of there has to be a release valve somewhere. So if a child learns that every time I, I, I have a reaction, I get a stronger reaction from my parent, I better stop having those reactions. And then as a result of that, it, it, it remains contained inside of them. And if it remains contained inside of them, at some point it's going to have to, uh, it's, it's going to, have to come out. And that's something which Revolba talks about this, swinging this back around to the beginning. Revolba says it's, it's, it's a frightening thing, but it's something that one has to be aware of because it's, it's so frightening. He says that children, he talked about it in terms of pachin. 
he says he, he was very anti-Pach before it was you know so so popular to be an, an, anti-Pach. But he he said that what happens is is that the child is young enough, they know that they can't go against their parent at that age. At five, four, or five, or six, or seven, they know that they can't go ahead and defend themselves against a the parent who's patching them, and therefore they have to just take it. You know? and, they, and they do. But he says it doesn't mean that they forget about it. Mm-hmm. They remain resentful of those, every one of those patches, and as they get older, and they go move through their teenage years, and they become independent, and they see themselves as more independent, and no longer under their parent control, that's where you're going to see the manifestation of that resentment coming out. And we look at them and say, oh my God, they, all of a sudden at 16, they just like, what happened to them? All of a sudden, all this, this defiant behavior and the dysfunctional behavior, where did it come from? It didn't start at 16. It didn't come from their peers at 16. It didn't come from their friends at 16. This is something which has been brewing since they were a young child. They just have the ability at that young age to be able to act it out. So therefore, it's just been there, been there, been there, been there, and then eventually, it's something which is, uh, you know, could, uh, which is going to, uh, to emerge. So uh, the, the child, uh, a, a child's ability to manage emotions is something which is going to be taught, not as a lesson, not in school, but it's something which is going to be modeled by us. In the modeling which we're going to do is how we respond to their emotions, and whatever their emotion is, all it means is, is that they, they, they're afraid and they don't know how to handle the situation. So given their skill set at that moment, this is the best, this is all they know how to do to respond and to, to communicate the fact that they're scared, that they're afraid, that they're in need, that they're in pain, they're in distress, they're, whatever the, the emotion they're experiencing is, this is the only way that they know how to go ahead and express it. This is the best way that they, they could do, given the circumstance of their, uh, given the, the circumstances and how old they are and the experiences which they had. And our job is not to deny them the emotions. Our not, job is not to tell them, don't be upset, don't cry. D- to say to them, don't, followed by any sort of emotion, is not going to help them deal with those emotions. That's not going to help, help them build resilience in life. The, the healthiest people are the people who, are, who know what emotions they're experiencing. They're self-aware enough to know the emotions which they're, which they're experiencing. And they know strategies of how to go ahead and, and, and to deal with them. And what do you need to do? Not necessarily to solve the problem. It's not problem-solving. It's learning to manage the, the emotions. And I think sometimes we get confused. Again, when we get triggered and our firefighters come online, our managers come online to try and take control of the situation, what we try and do is we try and put out the fire and get, just get control of the behavior as quickly as we can, which doesn't allow the child to experience the emotions and to give them the, the space to actually have that emotion and to, and to be able to do so. And if we don't give them that, then they're not going to learn it later on in life. And it's going to be something which is going to hamper them uh, as, they, as they move on. And it's something which they will, will likely struggle with as they go through their teenage years, adult years, and, and all of that. So going back to the, uh, to the title, and we'll, uh, we'll hold it here with the swing around. So he's t- talking about uh, parenting from the inside out. So the out is obviously the parenting, the interaction we have with the, the, the child. The, the from the inside is for us to be able to recognize the emotions we're experiencing before we go ahead and interact with them. And to realize when we get triggered, and it's actually, it's an avod, it's a tikkun mitos on our part, it's, a, it's an effort on our part to become self-aware of what triggers us, what happens when we get triggered, how to identify that, and then from that, a lot of it then begins to, uh, begins to sort of correct itself once one is aware, is paying attention, is conscious of, and is paying attention to those things which, uh, which trigger us. And that's something which is the, the most important thing that we could do for our children is develop our own inner emotional lives in a much, in a much stronger way. Uh, Rav Shimon Russell is a, is a name, a person that I'm, I'm very fond of, is a psychologist, used to be in Lakewood, he's now, I think, in, in Yerushalayim. But he said, he's very Litvish, but he said, as a Hasidic Shavort, he says there's a phrase, Tsar Gidobanim. So Tsar Gidobanim is the pain of child raising. So he said that the Hasidic way of reading that is, Tsar Gidol, Kama, Banim. Meaning, the way you discover the challenges of your own childhood is through your own children is your banan. Mm-hmm. 
is your children. Because they are the ones, as much as your spouse may trigger you, we won't take a you know, show of hands or anything about that, but as much as your spouse may trigger you, your children are going to trigger you a hundred times more so than, more so than that. And that, that just, that's just an indication of unfinished business in your own internal emotional uh, life, your own internal uh, being, which, ne- which needs attention. And therefore, you, you're, the best thing that you could do for your child is to acknowledge that and to work on that internally yourself, because that keeps the frontal cortex online for a longer period of time, rather than being triggered so quickly. And then you could be more attuned and more attentive to your child's emotional breakdown, whatever it happens to be, and to help them experience that and help them understand what they're experiencing and to let them know that it's okay, that they're allowed to have those emotions, they're allowed to go ahead and to feel very strong emotions and to be very upset about things and there's nothing wrong with being upset. In their world, that picture was everything. We look at it from an adult perspective, it's just a picture, draw another picture, you could do all sorts of things as a replacement, but from their perspective, that was everything in the moment. They live in the moment, and that was their entire universe at that moment, and somebody crushed their entire universe. That would be, Revolva says, it would be the equivalent, ripping a, a child's picture, breaking their Lego you know, structure, is the same thing as somebody taking a sledgehammer and smashing your Lamborghini. Now, we would all understand somebody would be upset if somebody took a sledgehammer and slashed slash it on the gear. Of course, that makes a lot of sense. That's an expensive car. I spent a lot of years building my wealth in order to be able to have that car. How dare somebody do that? That makes sense. But that's just from our adult perspective. From the child's perspective, that picture is exact, was the same thing. And if you break that, you broke, you've shattered their world. And that's why they're so upset. And you have to understand that. You have to appreciate that. And they have to be able to experience that. And we need to be, be the adult in the room to model that behavior that it's okay to have emotions and it's something which, uh, which are manageable and it's not going to put you outside of the tribe, it's not going to get you punished, it's not going to withhold any love from you whatsoever because you're having, the, because you're having those emotions and the more we go ahead and we do that for them, so then the more resilient they'll be and the better off they're going to be in the big picture. And let me just conclude with one of the things which I always find uh, amusing as kids go you know, grade by grade through school is, but at least for my kids it was, that every year the Rebbe or the Mar would say, this year they're going to learn diktuk. They're going to learn how to break down words in their shirashim, in the prefix, in the suffix, and this is going to be the year. Second grade, they tell us that. Third year, they tell us. Third grade, they tell us that. Fourth grade, they tell us. All the way through, everybody's telling us that this year they're going to do it. None of them know it anyways. So after all the time that this is going to be the year, so everybody thinks that the moment that their grade, what they teach, is the most important year developmentally for them in the big picture. And the truth is, is that all of that is just a piece of the puzzle. What I always say is that the, the graduation for child raising is when you walk them down to the chuppah. That's what, at the very beginning of Bereshis, the very beginning of creation, before they were actually children in the world. So Kaddish Baruch Hu says that what's going to happen is, at a certain developmental stage, a child is going to be capable of leaving his parents because he has enough attachment that he could take, go away from their sight and experience them without having to experience them with, with them physically in their presence. You could attach to another person, connect with another person, and then you could become one with them. And it's at that stage, that's the stage that you're reaching for. So it's not to get them to age seven or eight or nine. All of those are part of the process. And therefore, you can't get too caught up in any one particular moment. You can't be too afraid that, oh, no, if they're doing this at this age, what's going to be with them you know, later on? Like schools will, 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 will fear you into uh, thinking that this type of thing is going to happen. None of this is really so important, unless you make a big, you know, a big deal out of it. But none of it ultimately is going to be important. The goal is you should be able to walk them down to the chuppah, Proud as can be that they are resilient, they're functional, they're contributing, they're healthy, healthy emotionally, and that's really what, what, what we're trying to, uh, to get them to. And all of these things along the way are just part of the process to be able to get them to that, uh, that, that, that point of graduation. So as I said, there's a lot more uh, subcategories over all of this, but I think as a basic overview, this is what... Uh, so when yeah. I was saying about the crime, I was talking more... You didn't specify at the time that there was trigger, a big trigger for that child, but many times kids just cry because they, they want you to pay attention to them, rather than because somebody did something to them. And that's what I'm saying, is you could take that crying and make turn it into something more productive. Like, I think, like that's the thing, my 
middle child is a crier. Yeah. Everything. Uh, everything triggers. Bad. Like it's not. It's like it's how she copes with anxiety. It's how she copes with like people telling her like whatever. So doing her homework. No one said anything. No one got upset. No one did anything. Just starts to cry. She's crying. She's crying. We can't understand her now. She's still trying to do the homework. Now we're getting upset because she's crying. We're like, I'm not upset that you're crying. You can cry. You're welcome to cry. Go cry. Come back when you're done. Then we'll do it. Then it starts again. And then it takes too much time. And you're like, so we let her cry. But it's like, we, should, we need to learn how to... So, so that's what, what happened this morning. One of the things which happened today, as I said in the, in the, in the, in the opening, is that um, Carpal came early. Uh, I, I, have a, I have a child who's experiencing uh, severe schoolitis. <laughs> Not sure exactly why that is, but a severe case of, uh, of schoolitis. Carpal came early. He wasn't expecting that. And then he wasn't ready, he wasn't ready to go. So he start, starts crying. So you have the carpal waiting. Child's having a breakdown in the moment, and how are you going to go ahead and manage that? Because often this has to do with you know it's much easier to parent somebody else's child, so it's easy to go ahead and address things in a theoretical. Okay, hold them and let them know that you're there and comfort them and do all of those things. That's all good, but not when a carpal's waiting. Because <laughs> when the carpal's waiting, what are you supposed to do at that point? Either they're going to get in, or they're not going to get in. They only have so much time. So yeah, so you know, in real life, all of these things are much, but there are many more dynamics which are there, which have to, which have to be addressed. But but certainly, um, you know, this sounds like it's a little bit more like Tamar Shamus's thing, you know, trying to figure out what you know what what skills she may be lacking in terms of why she's crying, and that's you know she's crying, so she's she's frustrated by something or she's feeling bad about something, whatever whatever it is. But uh, but yeah, but uh, you know she has to you know she has to um, you know feel that uh, you know they, we always have to feel that unconditional you know lo- love of our parents. But yeah, it's a yes. <laughs> so I, I just I just saw a thing. I want I wanted to look it up, but I, but 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 I could. But I don't remember if it was twenty seconds. There was something. This uh, a, a fellow that, uh, that that I follow a little bit. So he talks about uh, that a hug. There's a certain point at which the where you cross the threshold of the duration of the hug, which also triggers uh, uh, ox- oxytocin. oxytocin. I don't remember if it was twenty. It was twenty, it was 20 seconds. Twenty second, a twenty second hug. You don't have to say anything, but just it's like sort of like a weighted blanket. I assume it's, it's, it's something like that. Just, just feeling that already sends the good chemicals in the, in, into the, into the brain, into the bloodstream, which I assume is going to be a calming thing for them. Is going to help them to uh, to go. So it may be that just oh, do, you do, do all those things. So, <laughs> One hug. so no, but but, but 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 so this this goes back to. This, this you know, put the timer on. This, this goes back to what I said that that each one, each one of these things is going to contribute. So don't think that just because one time I did it, 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 it I, I didn't see the results as of yet. That means that it's not working. It's working. It's just it's a it's a cumulative effect. What, what's I, I, what, I, 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 no, I was just going to say what I what I've seen. I mean, my own kids. Right. It goes back to what you said, like parenting other people's children. My own kids. I'm very triggered, but I also find. That when we validate or acknowledge feelings enough times, then those times where they're just crying for no reason are actually our best. So, like, they're seeking out this connection, and I don't know, at certain times you're like, there's no reason. Like, I'm just gonna walk away and you're gonna deal with this. But I find that, like, in other moments where, like, you really know what's happening, if you're really able to, like, connect to them and attune to them and acknowledge and easier said than done, but then those other times it's just like, Losing it are actually they decrease because they feel more connected to you. So they don't need to seek your attention in these more like maladaptive ways. But, but, but right, that, that that's the goal, is that, right. that that's uh, that's how they they learn. But it's mm-hmm. it, it's also you know you know I, I'm trying very much you know to pay attention to uh, you know to, to my triggers you know yeah. what, what what triggers me and try and you know track that and see see what that is and to be to be more uh, on top of that and to you know figure out what the strategies I need to do. You know everybody you know you have, you have deadlines. You know it's you know this past shop it's 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 every, since COVID, so I've been sending out the, the drush, my, my drushes. So it, it can be like air Shabbos, 2.30 in the afternoon. 
I'm only halfway through writing. I have to finish writing. I have to edit it. And they come in and they have a breakdown. You can't have a breakdown now. <laughs> we can't have a breakdown on Travis. You can't have a breakdown two hours from now. You can't have a breakdown. I'll sit with you and I'll hold you and I'll read you 16 Curious George or whatever you want in two hours. You cannot do this now because I really don't have you know, any time. But they need it now. You know, that's, that's always the, the, the hard thing. But when we come in, one of the things which, which Baruch Hashem I did learn uh, you know, er, earlier, well, some of my, my, my children are here, so I wonder what they're, they're thinking. But w- one of the things is, is that uh, w- when we come in with an agenda, that's usually a recipe for us to get triggered. I had things I needed to do. I had things I wanted to accomplish. You're getting in the way, and therefore, I, I, I can't manage it because I have things I need, to, I need to go ahead and get done. So as soon as we enter the room with, with our agenda, then usually that's, uh, you know, that, that, that's going to be a, 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 an opportunity for, uh, for triggering. Now, when, I, when, when one of the kids are sick and I'm just going to be home, I'm doing nothing today. I'm doing nothing today, and I don't plan to do anything. In that way, whatever I get done is, is all benefit. It's all, it's all profit. But if I go in there assuming, oh, I'm going to be home for the next three hours, I'm going to get three hours of work done, well, that was, that was my bad. That's not their bad. That's my bad to have that expectation. And then when I get short-tempered or I lose, I lose it because I'm not getting done what I want to do, that's all my bad. That's not their bad. They're, you know, they have schoolitis. What, what do you want from somebody with schoolitis? <laughs> They're suffering. Yeah. Um, just to recap, I wanted to find, like, I wanted to see when you, when you're saying, like, understand them, don't solve their problem, just emotionally be there for them. So if they're ripping each other's notebook, <laughs> I just go there. I'm not separating them, basically. I just want to understand. No, I just want. I'm not separating them. I let them break down each other's and then one is crying, one is not crying. I just say, I understand it was tough for you or like, I'm, I'm just trying to understand how to... to yeah, so I... But, uh, so I, 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 I lost that boundary. Yeah, so I, 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 I didn't talk about when siblings are, <laughs> are, are going at it with each other, uh, ma- ma- managing that, yeah. So that, that, that's, that's a different thing. Certainly, uh, at that moment, let's just, let's just frame the question over here. So when one is doing something to another, so you, ideally you want to be attentive to both of their needs. And one of them is, let's just, for lack of better terminology, one of them is bullying the other. So when one of them is bullying the other, you don't have to say, okay, you're, you're allowed to have your bullying feelings and you're allowed to have your I'm being beaten up feelings and that's all just, you know, kumbaya and they enjoy the, the feelings together. Um, certainly you want, you want to um, stop the, the, the conflict. Stopping the conflict isn't taking sides. It's not, not recognizing the emotions. It's that we can't, we, can't be, we can't have fighting. You can't be destroying somebody else's stuff. Even if you want to destroy somebody else's stuff, you can't uh, destroy somebody else's stuff. I, I, you're, something is upsetting you that you want to, what is it which is going on that you're uh, I mean you're not having a conversation in your own head you're saying why is it that this one wants to destroy the other person's stuff what, why is it that solving the problem you, it, it's, it's not solving it's not telling the child that he shouldn't be upset as to why he's destroying his sibling's thing Saying you can't destroy his, you can't destroy his stuff. Let's take this off the table. If they want to take my computer, they want to break it. I don't let them break my computer. We're taking this away, so this is this is no longer a a, a factor. And now let's let's address you. I don't want to address the thing. I want to address you. So if this is now proving to be a, a distraction from me being able to pay, pay attention to you, so now I'm going to give you my full attention. My eyes are locked on your eyes. One of the most powerful thing, powerful things that you could do is to lock eyes with somebody. So you lock eyes with your child and say, okay, now what, you know, again, you don't say what's happening, but you hold them and you, you speak to them and say, it's, it's so hard, you, you're, you're experiencing such, such strong emotions, you know, and you try and understand where, why are they feeling destructive? What's going on that they're, that they're being destructive? It's not, it's not about the thing. It's never about the thing. You don't have to allow them to rip each other. Right, and they don't have to destroy, you don't have to let them destroy no, something. I'm just trying to figure out how the emotion and the... Not solving problem separate because once you start finding their oh boy my brother took my computer because it was mine first or I took it first and then I'll say I understand you were using but I'm just solving the problem. But your no, guide, no, no, you guide them, then you can say well I, I wonder what we should do. They they problem solve on their own once you acknowledge the feelings. Mm. It's actually amazing if you do, like collaborative problem solving. If you do it. Whatever way they tell you to do it, you acknowledge them and you say, "Oh my gosh, he took your. You feel like he took your notebook, and you were using it, and you're so angry." And then you turn to the other one and 
you didn't know he was using it and you wanted to turn it and it looked so cool and oh man we have a problem we have two boys who both want the same notebook what do we do like you'd be amazing what they come up with well maybe i guess i could give them a turn maybe i'll rip out a piece of paper you don't need to do any problem solving Right, so it, it's uh, it, uh, some of it, you know. If you give it a try, uh, you know, some of it will, uh, you know, will uh, come, and you know, hopefully, you'll see that they'll be able to, uh, you know, to uh, to acknowledge and to be able to, uh, you know, to strategize on their own. But the main thing is for them to to, to let them feel those feelings you know, that they I need to be able to triggered. do. Is there is there an immediacy for the connection? Like, if you are triggered, is it better to just? Say, I can see that you're upset. Let's take a few minutes and then we can talk about like if you need to remove yourself and de-escalate your brain, your firefighters, mm-hmm. right? Is that putting that connection at risk? Like, is there a time limit? Like, do or can kids circle back? You know what I mean? Can can you have that that cool down period and circle back? Like, will Will it be detrimental to them if you're not, if they're not getting that immediate? No, so allow the twenty second hug. Allow the twenty second hug. Right, but what so if you need to take the mommy and then come back? So, so Jennifer Kalari, so she says that 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 actually making mistakes and then doing the repair is actually incredible is also incredibly helpful for the child. For you to, for you, number one, to be able to acknowledge that you, you you lost it, and people lose it, and mommies and daddies also lose it, and that's something which is okay. But you, you t- we take ownership for it. We say, "I'm so sorry. I was, you know, you don't have to explain to them exactly why, why you were triggered, but you say, I, 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 you know, I was a little bit out of control. I'm sorry, and you know, I, I apologize. Then give, you know, uh, you know, a, lo- a longer hug." So, but yes, right. th- th- that's like, will that be like, will they sense that as that rejection? Yeah. That, that, so, you, you, know, you, that you, have, you have to intru- you have to introduce it as a way that this is not a rejection of them. It's not it's not sacrificing the, the love. It's that I, I just need to get some cool air, and once I have some cool air, so then we're going to go ahead and do so. I I, I don't want to I don't want to say something which will make which will make it worse. And you let them know that that what, what you're doing is. It's, it, it is in, the, in their best interest. You're, you're, you're doing it for them. So if you, if you frame it in a way where you're doing it for them, so then that's something which is, uh, you know, that, that, that's okay. I usually tell them I'm five minutes to be mommy. How do you get them not from, like, hanging on to every, like, part of you? Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they can't necessarily do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's my problem. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. I appreciate it uh, very much. Those of you who are there on Zoom. Daughter and son will be so interesting to hear what they say. Two of my kids who have kids. So they were, they were, yeah. So it'll be so, yeah, so it'll be so interesting to hear because I was a much different parent than the earlier kids than the the later kids. So what triggers them is like something from childhood. Oh, for sure. They, they, they for sure get true. But, you know, and then, you know, the difference between them, it's number two and number two and number four. So also interesting. One boy, one girl. So it'll be interesting to see how their different responses to what, uh, what was going on.